first Sunday in the season of Advent. Uh, as David, who was leading us in worship, was, was uh, telling us about Advent and the season of waiting and preparing. And um, it's something that we have been thinking about as a church of, of okay, how do we better prepare us, this body? Um, how do we prepare to go into Christmas? Advent is four weeks of, of, of building up towards the celebration of the birth of Jesus, and how do we prepare our hearts for that? And, and sometimes it feels like there's a lot of forces unpreparing us for Christmas and kind of working against, you know, we're supposed to be focusing on Jesus, but I'm getting, you know, emails every single day that aren't about, you know, read this scripture and, and, and say this prayer and, and think about this aspect of God. I'm getting 20% off this, free shipping with you put in the promo code free ship 99 and, and visit now and take 5% off. I'm constantly getting these emails, this inundation of, of stuff to, to empty my wallet, right? We talk about in, in church that there's, you know, it's good to be emptied and filled up with God, right? But Christmas is like, let's empty that wallet. That's how we prepare for Christmas. And, and it's something that we realize, you know, it's going to be worth our time to take four weeks to prepare for Christmas. And so we've, we've paused our series that we've been doing in Ephesians, um, looking at the church, and we're continuing in this, or starting this new series, excuse me, today, um, that's looking at the four different voices of the four different gospel writers proclaiming the good news that it's Christmas. Um, so this series is called um, Four Voices one story, and that's simply just pointing out the fact that we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each have a unique take on Christmas, um, something that I think we forget when we tell the stories of Christmas. We often will combine Matthew and a little bit of you know Luke in there and sprinkle some John in there, and, and, and you'll see that you know, only one of the Gospels talks about the wise men, the magi, and only one of them mentions the shepherds and angels visiting the field, um, and Mark, as we'll get to next week, you'll see that's a whole different story, because there's kind of missing the birth of Jesus in that one, so that'll be fun as we get to next week, but but this week Which we're going to be focusing on the voice of Matthew, Which one has the singing um, and as we go Which into book? this series, Which I want to be thinking about Which book has the, singing angels? the nature of four voices together, and I was thinking of it in a singing quartet. Um, picture these four voices that come together and that sing in this quartet. And, and each voice has its unique qualities, right? Each voice has a, a different you know, warmth to it, a different pitch, a different tone, um, you know, sopranos, altos. Um, but then you combine that voice with three other voices. And while each voice remains unique, distinct, together all these voices come alive and the music richer and the song that they sing becomes more beautiful because you know one voice is resonating with another voice and the harmonies that are happening there and so each voice contains unique qualities but together we will see that it's just a more beautiful song and so we're hoping that spending a week looking at each Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that we will have a deeper appreciation of the beautiful song that is Christmas um, and so Matthew 1 is going to be our text today. If you would raise your hand, um, we would love to hand you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to keep that. Um, it would be our joy to give you that to, to go home with. And so, yeah, raise your hand high, and John here will hand you a Bible. 
If you're using that blue Bible that was passed out, we're going to be on page 557. Um, but before we jump into the text, um, we got a, a chunk that we're going to read today, and I think that there's some good background here that will help us better appreciate as we go into Matthew. There's a little background that, that really helps this text come alive more. And so, pray with me, um, and we're going to jump into it. God, our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to sit together, to open your word together, and, and even the fact that we have people visiting from out of town, maybe it's their first time here, maybe people have been here for years and years, that, that we are together because of you, because of who you are and what you've done, and we reflect on that as we go into the Christmas season, um, prepare our hearts truest sense of that prayer. Make us more open to hear the goodness that is Christmas, that is God taking on flesh and coming into this world. Help us to be receptive to your good news as we begin to look at Christmas today. Help us to set aside any, any distractions. Help the, the hearts be open to the teaching that you have for us, the truth that you have for us, and the power of your spirit. We ask for this in the name of Jesus. So as I said, a little bit of background before we get into Matthew. I want you to, best that you can, try to imagine yourself as sitting in the context of the New Testament here. Imagine you are in the first century of ancient Near East, um, and, and let's say that you are sitting here as somebody who is very, excuse me, very familiar with the, the teachings of the Old Testament. So say you are a well-read, educated Jewish person living in the first century, and you are familiar with the promises of God throughout the Old Testament. Some of those promises go all the way back to the book of Genesis, where we read about the creation of the world, and we read about the fall of that creation as sin entered into the world. And then we read even promises early on in Genesis chapter 3 and following that, that God was going to send somebody who was going to crush the serpent. You know, the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve to sin. God was going to send somebody to crush the serpent. And so even early on, there starts to be this hint of God's going to send somebody who's going to undo this wrong that we read about so early on. And then we see a few chapters later in Genesis 12 that there's a man, Abraham, and God chooses Abraham to give blessing to the, the nations. It says, I will make your name great, and I will use you to be a blessing to all people. And then after Abraham, the people of God, uh, the nation of Israel, went through incredible highs and lows, right? And there's a very tumultuous history, and in building up towards Israel was looking for this king who would lead them. And then finally, they have this great king, King David. David was the greatest king in the history of Israel. He was wise, he was godly, he led Israel to great prosperity. Um, and, and the people looked at David, and, and some of them thought, well, maybe he's the one we need. He's the one who's going to fix everything, who's going to right all of the wrongs. But though he was great, even after his death, or David died, and after his death, things went downhill really fast for the nation of Israel. The temple was destroyed. God's people spent, you know, their cycles of being under the rule of a foreign nation. They were in exile. Sometimes they'd be taken out of their homeland and brought to another place. 
and they were under the Babylonians and the Assyrians ruled over them. And then you would read the prophets all during this time. You would read these prophets we have all throughout the Old Testament, these prophetic writings, where, the, where God would speak through the prophets and say, there's coming a time, there's going to be a day, and I'm going to send a Savior. I'm going to send my Messiah, the one who is going to reestablish the throne of David, the one who's going to be from the line of Abraham, the one who is going to, to really set you aright, who's going to squash your enemies, who's going to return you to the life that you wanted from the beginning. And it was no exaggeration to say that all of the hopes of the people of God were, were placed in this person of the Messiah. And then so you go through years and years and years of these prophetic writings, and you get to, um, if you're familiar with that, the end of the Old Testament, um, you get to the prophet Malachi, and even Malachi, again, is saying it's the coming day of the Lord where he's going to bring justice and peace, and he's going to establish his king on the throne to rule over the world, or rule over the nations, excuse me, and we get to the end of Malachi, and a very interesting thing happens is that the next page, if you're literally turning in your Bible, you turn from Malachi to the New Testament, to Matthew. Because after Malachi, there were 400 years without any prophetic writings. There weren't prophets speaking, and it seemed like the, the throne of David, that, that line of David had just disappeared. That there was no successor to the throne there. And, and so people are looking at history in this time and saying, You're not even giving us a message of hope to, to push us on further. You're not even saying anything to us. And we're still under foreign rule. You know, we're still being oppressed at this point. The periods of being ruled by the Greeks and being ruled by the Romans. And it is in this setting, it's hundreds of years after David, thousands of years after Abraham, and after God made his initial promises to them, it is in that setting that we come to the Gospel of Matthew. It is in that world that we sit, that we find the opening verse in Matthew 1, verse 1. I'm just going to read that one verse. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. And those words were like the explosion into the that those words Matthew is saying, okay, the one that you've been waiting for, he has finally come. The one you've been spending centuries and centuries longing for, hoping for, he has come. And I'm going to tell you all about him. So if you would sit tight with me, I'm going to go in for the long haul right now. Read all of Matthew chapter. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. David was the father of Saul, 
by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel, and Sheatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elgid, and Elgid the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband, and Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, as did he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. It is good to, to read all of that. Maybe you're not thinking of that. I'll just tell you this. It's good to, to read all of that. I don't know if, if you're like me, there's a point where I was trying to read from Genesis to Revelation. I was trying to read through the Bible, and it was like a great moment of excitement when I would get to pages of genealogies. And I'm like, sweet, shh, I'm just going to skip over these, right? But there's something beautiful and sweet in hearing all this, and we're going to spend a little bit of time later talking about the genealogy. Um, but for now, the big picture today, and this is going to be 30,000 foot, we're in the plane, we're looking over the landscape. And then in the next few weeks as we approach Mark, Luke, and John, we're going to slow down and, and get a little bit lower. But for now, the big picture, Matthew has just told us that this is the one you've been waiting for. And imagine us, remember, we're sitting there in the first century, trying to see it through these eyes. We might have some very basic questions, and Matthew has some answers for these questions. That's going to shape our time today. We're going to look at answers to three questions. Okay, this guy, Jesus. Who is he? Where does he come from? And what does he want to do? Three very simple questions. And as we answer these questions, we're going to see the implications um, in our lives today, right? Hundreds of years later. So opening question, who is this person? 
Uh, Matthew's very willing to give us an answer. He's very willing to give us an answer about this. He starts with a very profound title about Jesus. He says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And the title is, is very informative about the person. Imagine meeting somebody for the first time and the title that is, is ascribed to them is going to shape your interactions with them. That's something that we find in film a lot. Very early scenes in a movie, initial introductions of a character are very formative for how you're supposed to see that character for the rest of the film. I was thinking about two movies I've seen recently. Uh, the first one being the new James Bond, sucker for those kind of mindless action movies there. And, and you know, every James Bond movie that's ever been made probably opens in the same way. I mean, what, what is the first scene like? There's something exploding, people running, hanging from something, he's chasing somebody or running from something. And, but what always happens is you're given this image of James Bond. He's incredibly good at well, hurting people, for one. He's good at getting away from things. Uh, he can hang on things and climb things really well. But basically, they're telling you, this man's capable. This man can achieve anything that he tries to do. No one can stop him. And he, you cannot deter him from reaching his outcome. And the rest of the film is shaped by those opening scenes of, this is what James Bond is like. Kind of at the other end of the capability spectrum is a film that I watched recently. Um, I actually, there are some of us uh, and staff here at Slaughter who found out that uh, our wonderful, beloved senior pastor, Andrew Hoffman, had never seen one of the greatest American films of all time, and that's Dumb and Dumb. <laughs> so while his family's away in France for a few months, we thought it's probably the only time we're going to get him to come over and watch Dumb and Dumb. So we succeeded, and we, uh, we initiated him into this rite of passage, but if you haven't seen it, Dumb and Dumber is a pretty self-explanatory title. Um, and the opening scene, again, to, to paint a picture of this character, the opening scene, the guy's a limo driver. And, and he sees this attractive woman on the side of the road, and he wants to meet this woman, so he, he crawls into the back of the limo to look like he's being driven around. He rolls down the window, and he asks for directions, and um, he notices she has an accent, says, well, that's a lovely accent you have. New Jersey? She says, no, Austria. Oh, Austria. Well, good day, mate. Let's do another trip on Barbie. And then she just looks at and says, well, let's not. And so you get the scene at the very beginning, setting the stage, that this man is the most unintelligent human being who's probably ever lived. And they fulfill that throughout the rest of the film. But Opening introductions are incredibly significant, especially in this narrative here. Now, if you are familiar with Christianity, if you're familiar with Judaism at all, you, you understand how loaded this sentence is to say, Christ, Son of David, Son of Abraham. And unfortunately, we're only going to get to scratch at the surface today because, not exaggerating, you could give a sermon series on Christ, Son of David, Son of Abraham. But we're going to have to do a brief overview, and, and some of you may be familiar with this, but think back to the context I gave you before we began reading Matthew, that these people were waiting for this Messiah, this one who's going to come and be a savior of the people who would establish 
Israel and the, the people of God, that they would be established in power, that their enemies would be vanquished, and they would have a period of peace, justice, and prosperity. And so the Messiah was the one that the people were waiting for. And the title Matthew gives Jesus here, he says, Jesus Christ. And I think most of the, some know this, but just a reminder that this isn't the last name. It's not Mary Christ, Joseph Christ, and Jesus Christ. Christ is the title. It actually comes from the Greek word Christos. And Christos um, is really the equivalent of the word in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word that is translated Messiah. So every time you say Jesus Christ, even if you're not aware of this, you are making a huge claim. Anytime you put those two words together, you're saying Jesus, the person that we read about in the New Testament, we believe that he is the Christ. He is God's chosen and anointed one that God has sent. So think about that. Every time you just casually throw out Jesus Christ, that is an incredibly profound statement that you're making. So Matthew does that here. And then, you know, he ties... Jesus to the fulfillment of the prophecies of saying that he was going to be a son of Abraham. Right? We read the lineage. He, he ties him to Abraham's heritage. And then Matthew ties him to David's heritage. He's a descendant, a direct descendant of David. So really, Matthew, what he's doing, he's saying, okay, Christ, check. Son of David, check. Son of Abraham, check. And he's very clearly laying this out to the beginning, or from the beginning, that Jesus fulfills all of the prophecies, all of the longings, all of the hopes that you have. Jesus is the one. And really, you could probably summarize chapter 1, verse 1 by saying, God is faithful. God is faithful. Everything that had been promised, God has fulfilled it. In the Matthew, we're not going to read all of it, but there's, you know, verse 23, and then chapter 2, verse 6. Uh, and then chapter 2 uh, are fun to read later, 15, verse 18, and chapter 3. There's all these Old Testament quotations that Matthew includes them and says, literally says, Jesus fulfilled this, Jesus fulfilled that. This happened to show that Jesus fulfilled this. And so Matthew is very clearly saying, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. So God was faithful. God did what he said. And the surprising thing, though, is it was not in the time that anybody expected. A lot of people had probably given up hope. We've been waiting long enough. God, you haven't done anything. I'm going to give up hope now. But God did not forget his promises to the people. And even if it wasn't in the time that they had expected, God was faithful. So the, the implication for us is simply this. For those of us who are waiting be encouraged because God has proven himself to be a faithful God. God fulfills his promises to his people. And if looking at this story as the example, if it's anything to go by, we know that God is going to be faithful, but probably not in the timeline that you're expecting. And it might actually be a lot longer than you're expecting. But God is still faithful to his promises. Think of the years and years of longing and hope these people had had. And it came to fruition, but not in their time. And so as we look at the answer to this question, who is Jesus? Um, another implication is that that question, who is Jesus, it, it resonates throughout history. It 
It's like the, the rock that you drop, the water, and the ripples go out and out and out. That question did not just remain, okay, I'm going to read this one page, and who is Jesus? Okay, that question was solved. But that question faces every single one of us today, because Matthew very clearly is locating Jesus as a specific person in a specific time and place. He's making it clear this is not just a symbolic Messiah, this isn't just some idea of a Savior, but Jesus is a person. Because he stands in time and place, we have to make up our mind about him. Who do you say that Jesus is? C.S. Lewis famously said that you look at the person of Christ and you have to say, well, either he is who he says he is, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one sent to redeem and to save his people, or he's delusional, or he's a liar. There aren't any other options, C.S. Lewis says, for how you view Jesus, because when he stands in front of you, you have to say, well, are you who you say you are? Or are you lying, or are you crazy? I mean, if we read on into chapter 2, we we'll actually find very quickly an example that, that Jesus does not allow us to take the middle ground, but we have to decide well, what do we say about him. If we read on, uh, I'm not going to read it all today, but you come into the story of um, the Magi, the, the wise men, probably these educated astronomers who would come, as it says in chapter 2, verse 2, they come and they say, where is he that has been born king of the Jews? They have faced this person of history, and what do they do? They respond, and they worship him. They come, as we're singing in that song, oh, come, let us adore him. They come to Jesus, and they bring gifts, gifts that are fitting for a king, and they, they recognize who he is, and they bow down and worship him. And then if you read on in chapter 2, you run into king at that time, King Herod. King Herod also encounters the person of Jesus, but he responds very differently. It says that King Herod, feeling threatened by Jesus, went, sent his troops into Bethlehem to kill every single boy, ages two and under. He wanted to make sure if Jesus is out there, I'm going to take him. So you see, faced with this person of Jesus, there are very different reactions. But what we don't see is a responsibility. There's, there's not the middle ground here. Jesus does not allow that because he stands in history and he says, even to his disciples in Matthew 16, his words are, who do you say that I am? So that question continues to us today and maybe some of you are here and you have yet to answer that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you say that, well, he's a madman, he's a lunatic, he's a liar, or do you say that he has to be the Son of God. He has to be the Messiah. Everything I read, the only way it makes sense is if he is truly the Messiah, the Christ, the one we are looking for. But what we can't say is, well, I, I like some ideas from him. You know, I, I like some of his teachings and, and his you know, persona in the world, but I don't believe that he was anything significant. But the person of Jesus does not allow that. So that first question continues to us today. Who do you say that he is? Uh, but the second question is one that the text also deals with. Where does he come from? And like I said, I contemplated skipping over the genealogy, but I don't know, once in a while, you've got to 
hearing some of these names and hearing some of them be butchered, probably half of those beautiful names that I'm making it up as I go sometimes. It's good to read this because there are parts of the genealogy that if we just skip over them, there are beautiful parts of this that we could just miss. Because a genealogy today, like I said, sometimes, oh sweet, read over it. But that's because I'm coming into this text as an individual, modern person who says, I am who I am, and my family doesn't shape that. I'm, I'm not valuable because of who my family is. I mean, think about it. In our culture today, it's like a hobby to be into your ancestry, right? You have to pay for a login account for Ancestry.com to like find out where you come from. That's unheard of in an ancient world. That's even unheard of today in many other cultures. That we don't know who we are, where we come from, and then it's this thing where you have to swipe a credit card to find out who your great-great-great-grandfather is. I still don't know if I'm related to Benjamin Franklin or not. I probably don't want to look it up because I don't think I am, but I'll be crushed. It's just my issue I'll have to deal with. But, but in the first century, it was your family that showed who you were, and your family, which was, oh, here's your value in this world. And Matthew included the family tree of Jesus as a way of establishing his credentials. He's highlighting the lineage of, of Jesus as being tied to David, right? He's the king who, who succeeds the throne of David. And one biblical scholar uh, pointed out that the genealogy in, in the ancient world is very similar to the resume in the contemporary the resume, you know, you put this together and you're establishing your credentials and you're saying that, that here's what my worth is because of my education, um, here are my awards, here's my experience, and, and here are letters recommending me to work for you in this capacity. So this is Matthew really putting forward the resume of Jesus, saying he's legit. Look at his family lineage. But, as we do dig a little bit deeper. As we do look at some of these names, we, we find two very surprising facts, two very surprising implications of this genealogy. Oh, I'll just sum it up in, in two words. Significance and grace. Okay, we, we, we see observations from genealogy. We see significance and we see grace. What do I mean by that? Uh, the first one is that you're looking at the genealogy of and not exaggerating, the most significant human being that ever walked this earth. Jesus Christ has had a greater impact, more impacted in transformative ways across all cultures, throughout all of history. And we are looking at his genealogy, we're looking at his family, and there are people on this list we have no idea. No idea. There are some names in here which are never mentioned again in the Old Testament, the New Testament. There's no mention of them. But we don't even have other historical sources to corroborate who we are supposed to be. And yet, for some reason, these people are important enough to be included in the genealogy of Jesus. I think we live in a part of the country here in the Bay Area where people come for significance. Not always, but in many ways, people move to the Bay Area for significance. They, they come to make a name for themselves. You don't come to the Bay Area to, to hide. You don't come to the Bay Area to, to get away from people or to get away from 
things. You go to the mountains for that. You go to the desert for that. But you come to the Bay Area because there is a culture here that you find valuable. There, there is education here that you find valuable. You want to be a part of some of the schools here because of the job market, because of the salaries. You want to be here. You want to be a part of this. There are companies here that are making waves in the world. And we want to say, I want to be a part of that significant movement. That is exciting. And I want to be clear and just say, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that to be a part of something significant is negative. I'm not suggesting that in the least. And I actually, I personally feel strongly that Christians need to be more involved in more significant movements to have a greater impact in this world. But what I am saying is this. The true and lasting significance does not come from anything that you can produce, anything that you can think of, anything that you can create or write. And I don't want to sound like a jerk here, but the risk of sounding like a jerk. I will say this, but I was thinking about myself this week and, and thinking about this question and, um, and chewing on it, and it's kind of a harsh reality, but who is going to remember Really, who is going to remember you? Maybe I'm going to ask you that. I apologize. But, you know, if you have kids, your kids will certainly remember you. Hopefully your grandkids will remember you. But great-grandkids, possibly. But a couple generations down, maybe they'll know a name. And not much more than that. Maybe you've written a book. That might have some more lasting power. Maybe you've written a really good book. It's going to stay in print for 100 years. But 100 years, 120 years from now, who's going to remember that? Who's going to remember the thesis that you worked on that was so revolutionary and changing when you graduated with your PhD and then in five years, how many people have taken that off the bookshelf of the library? Think about your huge Instagram followers and Facebook friends that you have built up. I mean, you say something dumb or post something dumb, you're going to lose like 20 of them like that, so... You know, that's fleeting, but really, the, the app, the company that you've built, where are they going to be in, in 10, 20 years? And I'm not trying to beat up on you, because I do believe that God wants us to make good, beautiful things. God wants us to invest our time and energy into making good things for his kingdom. But I'm just saying this. In the book here, we read about a handful of people that were apparently no no recollection in history of who these people were. Yet we're reading about them. Some of them hundreds, some of them thousands of years later, we're still reading about them. And why have their names not faded away? It's because they were connected to Jesus. They found their significance because they were tied to the name of Jesus. And to be tied to Jesus is the only way that you will find true and lasting significance. And when you become a part of this family, this wacky, wild family of the church, when you become a part of this, you, you step into something that is bigger and more significant than anything you will try to make in your own life apart from the church. And your name being tied to Jesus will have eternal and lasting Significance, As we've been saying week after week in the Ephesians series, remember that as you step into the family of God, you are a chosen, beloved, adopted, redeemed, 
sealed. I still think I'm forgetting one of those. Child of God. Your name is now of eternal significance. And all that you build for Jesus, all that you participate as you, as you are involved in his kingdom, all of that has lasting eternal significance. The honor of being a Christian cannot be overstated. And we can approach this world, we can be snubbed and, and rejected and, and passed up for promotion, we can be forgotten by this world, we can be laughed at, but we can approach this world and say, you know, that's okay that you say that about me, because my king loves me. The true king of the world, king of the universe, God's established king is the one who says, I'm significant. So I'm okay if you don't think I'm significant, because I have a true and lasting significance in Jesus Christ. And the second observation, just make this brief from the genealogy, there are names in here which aren't traditionally worthy of a king, to say that. First of all, there's four women that are mentioned in the lineage of Jesus, and that was something that was virtually unheard of in this time. If you're trying to establish your credibility, you're typically not promoting women in your heritage in the first century here. Especially these women that Matthew includes, because these women all have Gentile connections. Remember that that Matthew is showing that Jesus is the one who is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. He's the one you've been waiting for. He is the king that you've all been waiting for. And he's promoting this to a mostly Jewish audience, and then you have him including Gentiles as a part of that? That's not really going to help your argument, Matthew. What are you doing here? And not only women who have Gentile connections, but one of them pretended to be a prostitute. One of them was a prostitute, and yet here they are still included in part of Jesus' resume, right, in his genealogy. And the implication is simply this. Here, early on in Matthew, even in chapter 1, we are getting a glimpse of the grace of God. And when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it does not matter what sort of shameful person that you feel that you are. It does not matter if you feel that you are unworthy or defiled or disgraced in any way because God gives you a new name. It's not because you are deserving of that new name, but in His great love and His great mercy, God brings you into His family, gives you a seat at His table, and you become a part of His tradition, His lineage. And so it is that glimpse of what is true and lasting significance getting a glimpse of his grace. We're already finding that in Matthew 1. And now, moving on to the, the final question. We'll be brief on this, as Matthew makes it pretty straightforward in the text here. Jesus, what did he come to do? I'll read this again, verse 21. It says, The sheep will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That first part of the, the answer there, it says that she will bear a son, and she will call his name Jesus. And the first half of this next sentence, I love it, it says, you know, 
for he will save his people. And you can imagine people hearing this. Yes! This is it. This is the one we've been waiting for. I told you he was going to come and he's going to save his people. I can't wait for him to crush our enemies, to reestablish the throne, to put us back in political significance, economic significance. He is going to save us in power, you know? And you read the rest of that sentence, for he will save his people from their sins. You can imagine maybe the person hearing that is a little deflated at that point. Save my sin. Oh, I wouldn't. Save, you know, save us. Save from sins. I don't, what are you talking about? You see, early on, God already had a better plan than people were looking for than what the people were expecting. It says that the Savior would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. I mean, again, we could go so deep into what does that mean, God with us, Emmanuel? And here we just have time to, to state the fact that God took on flesh. God came into the world form of a baby, a, a defenseless, helpless little baby, that he humbled himself to the point to take on that form. And that is how God chose to enter into the world. His great salvation plan was to take on the form of a baby and come into the world in that form. This was not a political, military victory. This was not coming in with the armies, riding on a giant white stallion. This was the baby in the manger. You can imagine Mary and Joseph having a really hard time getting their mind around. What does it mean? The angel just told us, our baby's going to save people from their sins. What, is, what does that mean? But you find that Matthew already, this early on into the birth of Jesus, he's already looking ahead to the end of the story. Because even at his birth announcement, Matthew was already hinting at this Messiah's death. We would skip forward to a couple more verses um, into chapter 2. I didn't read this yet, but in the chapter 2, verse 2, these, these wise men, the magi, these astronomers, that they, they came to the King Herod and they asked, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? And they asked the king about another king, which probably not the smartest idea if they wanted to save themselves, but they said, where is he who is king of the Jews? And that phrase there is actually a phrase that Matthew repeats two other times. But we don't hear that phrase, king of the Jews, for a long time in Matthew's narrative. It's actually not until near the end, Matthew 27, we hear that exact phrase again come up when Pilate asks Jesus at his trial, are you the king of the Jews? And a few verses later, we see that phrase again as the soldiers were mocking Jesus, putting the crown of thorns on his head, not, not a beautiful crown to honor him, but a crown of thorns to mock him, humiliating him, spitting on him as they said, Hail, the king of the Jews! But God in his great wisdom, is already looking forward to this, saying, 
Yes. That is my king. Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews? God gives a resounding, yes. That is the king that I'm putting forward. Because my king has come to save the people from their sins. My king has come to die on the cross so that you can have life. And it seems kind of dark at first. Matthew, you're talking about the birth and this wonderful thing. Why are you already hinting at his death? And it's only because in the wisdom of God, in the way that he has orchestrated all things, it is death that brings life. And it's something that is hard for us to understand in our finite minds, but God in his perfect plan saw it fit to send the great Messiah, the one that was going to rescue all people. And he went to die on the cross so that we could have life. And so even at Christmas, we're already looking towards Easter. It's hard to separate the two because the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are immensely significant in the story of Matthew. And we're just getting a glimpse of that today, but we can see already to be thinking about Christmas is to be thinking about this God who took on flesh and was quickly headed to the cross. Would you pray with me? God our Father, we come to you understanding that Christmas is, is a time of the year that may not always be one that we're intensely focused on you. It may not be one that we are living in the spirit of that holiday in the truest sense of looking at you as, as the one who has come into the world, God's chosen one come into the world to save the people from their sin, as the text says. But I pray that even today in the power of your spirit, you would begin to draw our attention to who you are and, and what you have done. As we look at Mark and Luke and John, we will see the beauty of what does it mean that you came and dwelt among us and you took on flesh. I pray that we would be a people who are transformed by Christmas, knowing that Christmas is already leading to Easter, knowing that there's a time that we're going to read about in Matthew multiple chapters later where you accomplish your purposes of saving the people from their sins and conquering death as we do this from the dead. So we celebrate that as, as we worship, as we break bread together, as we fellowship together. We celebrate all of that knowing that you sent your king and you had the ultimate victory already. We pray in the name of Jesus.